What is church? Is it a building? With some pews? A piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who could not care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus to help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome. 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 Welcome to church. Good morning, church. So the church, pretty amazing, isn't it? Hearing some of the stats, hearing some of that going on. Uh, seeing what God is doing throughout the world, and it's pretty amazing to be able to behold and talk about. Uh, yesterday, I had the opportunity of going to a banquet for uh, Reaching Indian Ministries International, and uh, the speaker there by the name of Bob Baki was talking about that this is the most exciting time to be living in history. And I, he said, if you don't believe that, then you have a problem. He said, because we have the opportunity of reaching the entire world in a way that we've never had before, of sharing the good news of Jesus. He, he goes on and he cites statistics that were pretty unbelievable. He says it took radio about 40 years to get, uh, I think he said, 40 million people. He said it took television about 14 years. And he talks about the Internet took about four years. And he was talking about how now, even if someone gets out there and gets like an iPod, they can reach 40 million people in just, uh, I mean, months. And we have all of this opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ to the entire world. And the church is active, the church is strong, and the church is doing some great things. And yes, there's evil in the world, but there are churches that are standing for truth and that are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world. See, we've been talking, uh, this is our, our series, it's a short series we call DNA. What is the church and who are we as a church? We examine what the, the purpose of a church is and one of the things that we can do. And we've been breaking down our mission statements as a church. And last week, we talked about loving Jesus to the point of transformation. That's the essence of who we are. And then there's a second statement that's there, and that's loving each other to the point of sacrifice. And then a third statement that will be covered next week, which is loving our neighbor to the point of action. This is who we are. This is who we are as Village Bible Church in our community and how we are to reach and behave as believers in Christ. This is who God has called us to be, and this is what we want to be as we seek to be salt and light in our community. So today we want to see what does it mean to truly love one another because we know that though the church is doing great things, that there are some churches that have turned away from the Word of God, and they are dead. Just as they cited uh, some of these great universities that had been founded by Christians, they had left the Word of God, many of them. Harvard, Yale, uh, some of them have just turned their back completely on God's Word. Though they had great Christian foundations, they have cut themselves from the anchor that held them to truth. And we need to see and revisit it each generation how we are to be anchored in the midst of this world to the truth of Christ. As Youth for Christ used to say, this old uh, youth organization would say, we are anchored to the rock but geared to the times. 
And how do we express and show Christ in the midst of the generation that we live in? How do we truly love one another to the point of sacrifice? What does that look like? And what, in essence, is our DNA? Who are we? Because not all churches are the same. I was speaking with Andrea Gerhardt. I'm going to highlight Andrea here for a second. Um, Andrea was talking with a, she was sharing me a conversation she had with one of her coworkers um, a few weeks back. And uh, her coworker was talking to her, and they, um, she was saying that you might want to find a church that better suits your needs. Because um, Andrea's like, I want to get married. So she's single and available, for those that want to know. Uh, her number is, I'll text it to you. No, no, no. She's going to kill me later. Uh, but, but she was talking about being involved in different churches. And this woman said to her, hey, you know, you need to find another church. And she's like, no, I love my church. I love this body of believers. I love who they are. And she goes, well, all churches, her friend responded and said, all churches are the same. And Andrea, who's grown up in a pastor's home and been in churches in Ohio and in New York and in Illinois, she goes, no, not all churches are the same. That there's something different here. That we've seen grace bestowed. We've seen people truly try to love one another sacrificially. I'm not saying we're perfect, and I'm not saying there aren't other great churches out there. There are, even in our community. But there is something different that I believe that God is doing by his spirit here, uniquely here. That he is transforming hearts and minds, and that he is bringing together in one another in community, in, in really experiential community like I've not seen before. I was talking with someone the other day, and they said, what's your church known for? Is it known for expository preaching? Is it known for dynamic worship? And I said, you know, as I think about it, and what I've seen transform as the Holy Spirit has worked within us in the past few years, I'd say it's known for true, authentic community and grace. Grace. Often when you see churches with titles, usually the title in the, the name is usually a wish and a hope, not who they are. And a lot of times, you've seen churches with the term grace that lack it completely. But I think now, what I'm seeing God do is work grace within us in a way that I've not seen. Seeing people give themselves sacrificially, people see, see them transform, seeing them take steps of faith. I'm hearing of conversations of different people, and I've been blown away at what God is doing. And what God will continue to do. And not only through us, but throughout the world, because God is at work. We heard a report to yesterday that there are 50,000 Chinese coming to Christ every day. 50,000. This was a country that was close to the gospel and kicked out all missionaries in 1949, and God is doing such a work there. It's amazing. And in India, the floodgates are getting ready just to open. Because God has been working at pe through people's prayers, I mean, gone 2,000 years ago. And it's getting ready to just go out into the world in such amazing ways. And it's exciting to be a part of it. And today, we're going to talk about and see how God is calling us to love one another. And we can see it in other parts of the world, and we can see it here. And I want to encourage and challenge us to be thinking, how can we truly love one another to the point of sacrifice? I want us to look at the scripture, and I want to give you share some stories at what I have heard and seen God do doing in other parts of the world, in churches all over the place, that we might be encouraged and challenged and transformed for his glory and our joy. So let's take a few moments, and I want to ask God's blessing on our time today, and I also want to pray for the church, not just our church, but I want to pray for the church as a whole throughout the world. So join with me as we pray for believers, and we pray that the church might be transformed for the glory of God, and that they might be salt and light all over the world. Our Father, we come into your presence knowing that you are the holy God. And you are the God who has called us to yourself. And Lord, though we see evil abounding all around us, we see uh, our nation collapsing upon itself, yet, Lord, we know that you are faithful and that you will be victorious. And that where evil abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Lord, your kingdom is going to continue to grow, transforming hearts and minds. And Lord, we do pray for strengthening in our location and in our church. We pray for not just our church, but our other campuses. We pray for Sugar Grove. We pray for Indian Creek. We pray for Campus Espanol. Lord, we pray that you strengthen and help us to be faithful to the call upon our hearts. And Lord, not just our church, uh, but the other churches in our community. Lord, we pray that they might be faithful, that they might preach your word. And Lord, I pray not just for our church, but our state, our country. Lord, I pray for the United States that there might be a revival and that the church might be faithful, that we might risk, uh, we might forsake compromise, but we might stand true for the word of God. 
Lord, we pray for the church in Canada. We pray for the church in Mexico. We pray for the church in Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, and Costa Rica, and Belize, and Honduras. Lord, we pray for the church in uh, St. Kitts, and Nevis, and, and in the Bahamas, and Jamaica, and Haiti, and Dominica, and Dominican Republic, and Antigua, and Barbuda, and Barbados. Lord, we pray for the church uh, all over the Caribbean. Lord, we pray for the church in Trinidad and Tobago. We pray for the church in Suriname, and Guyana, and, and in French Guinea, and in Colombia, and Venezuela, and Bolivia, and Peru, and Brazil, and Chile, and Argentina. Uh, Lord, we pray for the church in Paraguay, and Uruguay, and Chile, and Lord, we pray for the church in all over Europe, and Andorra, and San Marino, and Vatican, and Italy, and Macedonia, and Greece, and Bosnia, and Croatia, and the Czech Republic, and Lord, we pray for the church in Switzerland, and Hungary, and Austria, and France, and the UK, and Ireland, and Iceland, and Norway, Sweden, and Lord, we pray for the church in Finland, and Latvia, and Lithuania, and Estonia, Lord, we pray for the church in Ukraine, and in Belarus, and in Russia, and, and Lord, uh, in Moldova, and Romania, and, and Albania, and Azerbaijan, and Lord, we pray for the the church in Kosovo and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, Lord, we pray that you strengthen and establish them, Lord, in, in countries like Luxembourg and Liechtenstein or Spain and Portugal and France and Germany and Poland. Lord, in Denmark and the Netherlands, we pray that your blessing might be upon them in countries like Belgium and Malta and Cyprus and Turkey, Syria. Lord, pray for the peace in Syria. We pray for people that the church might stand true and that, Lord, they might be a beacon of light in the midst of such hostility. We pray for the end of that hostility there. Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for peace in Jerusalem. We pray for the Palestinians in the West Bank. We pray for those in Jordan. Uh, Lord, we pray for those in Lebanon. We pray for those in Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Oman and the United Arab Emirates. Lord, we pray for those in uh, Kuwait and Bahrain and Qatar. Lord, I pray for those in Comoros or Madagascar or Seychelles. Lord, I pray for those in Cape Verde. I pray for those in Sao Tome and Principe. Lord, I pray for those that are in Equatorial Guinea or Guinea. Or Lord, I pray for those that are, that are in Guinea-Bissau or Sierra Leone or Senegal or Mali or Mauritania or Morocco or Egypt, Liberia, Algeria, Tanzania, Tunisia. Lord, we pray for your peace and your presence in all of those places. We pray for your peace in Kenya. Lord, we pray for your peace in Ethiopia and your presence. We pray that you establish the church in Uganda and Rwanda and Burundi and the Central African Republic. And Lord, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Republic of Congo and Cameroon and Senegal and Liberia. Lord, we pray for the church in Cote d'Ivoire or Togo or Benin or Ghana or Burkina Faso. Or Lord, I pray for the church in, in, in uh, South Africa in Lesotho and Swaziland and Mozambique. Lord, our missionaries, we pray for them that are there. We pray for all of them. We pray for Madagascar. We pray for those in Mauritius. Lord, we pray for Malawi and Somalia. We pray for the church in Sudan and South Sudan and Kenya and Ethiopia. Lord, I pray for those in Niger and Nigeria and Chad. And Lord, I, I pray that you establish and strengthen us in, in Gabon or the Gambia. Lord, I pray for all those African countries. Lord, they might have a great revival. And Lord, I pray for those in Asia. I pray for those that are in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan or Turkmenistan or Afghanistan or Pakistan. Lord, we pray for the church in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam and Bhutan and India, Sri Lanka and Maldives. Lord, we pray for the church in Nepal. We pray that you strengthen and establish the glory of your name in China and Mongolia and Russia and North Korea and South Korea and Japan and the Philippines and Taiwan and Singapore, Fiji, Vanuatu. Tuvalu and Kiribati and, and Lord I pray for the church in New Zealand and Australia. Lord we pray for the church in Tonga or Samoa we pray for the church in the Marshall Islands or the Micronesia or Lord we pray for the church in uh, I pray for the church Lord in Papua New Guinea and Pavalao and uh, Lord we pray that you strengthen and establish the glory of your name that your name might extend to the farthest reaches of the world. Lord, we, we pray that you, you use us to make your name known in countries like Bangladesh and in Thailand. Lord, we want to see the glory of your name proclaimed throughout the entire world. And we pray your blessing on our time together today. And may we have a heart for the nations in a profound way to reach those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. To those who are in bonds of oppression that have been put into slavery. That, that are widows and they are orphans. Lord, may we truly be salt and light. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus. And may you glorify your name in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's jump into our text as we talk about the world. 
world's a big place, isn't it? It's a big place. So many different countries, so many different lands. It's amazing to see what God's doing throughout the world. But we also see what we are called to do and be here, that God calls us to be a family of believers. And we're not to be an ordinary family, but we're to be an extraordinary family, because that's what happens when God calls us to himself. He calls us to be a part of his kingdom and a part of this, this family. And sometimes this family can be dysfunctional, can it not? You know? We all know that. We all know that dysfunctional families. And sometimes the church can be that way. I mean, we can look in the scripture and clearly see that. But we continually read God's word, place ourselves on the operating table of his grace, and let his word remove the cancer of unbelief and sin in our hearts that we might do and be what he calls us to be. So let's look at our text today as we, we jump into this text in Philippians. And, and for those who don't know, this is the first church that Paul had founded. And it had a special place in Paul's heart. It wasn't the biggest church. Uh, they were actually a pretty healthy church, but there was some conflict in the church between some of the leaders. And he is calling them to be unified, to give one another and follow the example of Christ. So Paul starts off in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What he's saying there is he, he wants them to see, and as well as us, that God calls us to be a family, and that we're to love one another to the point of sacrifice. And that means, first of all, celebrating the advantages of loving one another. Paul is actually giving some advantages that we can have for loving one another. You know, there are, it is advantageous to love other people. It's not just about you and Jesus and no one else. As we've talked so often in the scriptures, it's about loving God and loving others. Even the Ten Commandments is set up in the first four to talk about how we are to love God. And then five through ten talk about how we're to love and behave with one another. So we see how we are to behave with one another and how we are to love one another. And we need to celebrate and realize that there are advantages to truly loving one another. The first is this. That it's through loving one another that God gives us courage. God gives us courage. Paul is saying, if anybody has received encouragement, I want to pass it on to you. And if everyone has been a participant in the Spirit, I want you to share that, what God has done and what God is doing. And as the Scripture says in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, as one as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That we encourage one another, that we press one another on to take greater risk for the name of Christ. As we prayed today for the church in China, and I've talked a little bit about China, I'm amazed of the story of a man named Brother Yoon. There's a book about him called The Heavenly Man by Paul Hathaway. Uh, he's, uh, he is uh, a leader in the Chinese church, although he is outside of the country right now. He's ministering in the West. But if you hear his story, it is absolutely unbelievable. This is a guy that has been imprisoned, beaten with rods. I mean, he has been urinated on, defecated on. He has had to... to uh, They've kept him in small cells where he can't turn over or even extend fully. They have completely just beat him, humiliated him, tortured him time and time again, keeping him without sleep, and yet he continues to testify to the greatness of Christ. And the reason he's in prison in the first place is because of his, his preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that China deems in some circles to be against and conspiratorial against the government. But this, uh, during one arrest, he tried to escape by jumping out a window and ended up fracturing his legs. And that the authorities were so angry that they beat his legs with rods until he couldn't feel anything else but pain whenever he moved. They were so bad that his legs turned completely black. And he was have to be carried around throughout the prison by different men because he couldn't walk any longer. And after dealing with this excruciating pain, he would quote scripture. He kept witnessing to the guards. And God called him and God said to him, get up and walk out of the prison. This is in Zhangzhou, the most maximum security prison in all of China. And this man did something unbelievable. He took God at his word. And he stood up and he couldn't even think. It. He hadn't walked on his legs in six weeks. He thought they were broken. And suddenly he's being able to walk on them and he's shuffling to the door of the first locked gate. He walks actually out of his prison cell and walks down to the first gate and it's locked. And he sees another prisoner. He's on the third floor and he sees another prisoner walking in and the guard opened the gate for him and he just walks right past him. And the other prisoner looks at him like, aren't you guys going to stop him? 
And he just keeps walking, but he can barely walk, so he grabs a broom and he starts making his way difficultly down the stairs. And he comes upon the second guard. And the, the guard, he just, the gate happens to be open when it wasn't supposed to be, and the guard just stared, stared straight out into space. And he said, I walked right by as if he didn't even see me. And then I made my way down into the first floor, and I came upon the biggest gate, and it happened to be open. And he goes, this is at 8 a.m. when all of the guards are there, and there's all a flurry of activity going on. And he goes, I slowly made my way outside into the prison yard, and there are all these guards standing right around, and I just walk right out the front gate. And then a, a police car pulled right, I mean, a police car, a taxi pulled right up. He got in the car, and they escorted him to, uh, he gave him the address, and he went to a Christian family. I mean, God worked amazingly, because he kept thinking the entire time, I could be shot at any moment but I'm going to take God in faith. And God kept speaking to him and speaking to other believers through him and said, you now must escape from the country. You need to leave immediately. So another brother came to him and goes, God told me that I'm to give you this passport. So he goes, okay, and he takes this passport and he goes, there's a problem. The guy looks nothing like me. He's bald and he has glasses and I have neither. But God tells him, don't say anything unless I tell you to. So he goes to the... the uh, airport in Beijing and he shows his ID, his passport to the guards and they start laughing because he looks nothing like it. And he says, this isn't you. This isn't you. It shows it to the other guards. It's not him. This isn't you. So they, they, they were, he was holding up the line. So they put him to the side and they let other people go through and they finally looked at him. They said, this isn't you. But even if we let you go through, he was trying to fly to Germany. He goes, they're going to send you back. So they stamped the passport and they let him go through. He gets on board this flight from China to Germany, 12 hours. He lands. He's going out of the airport, and they have to check his ID again. The German official looks at it, looks at him, gets a very quizzical look, and Brother Yoon just stares at him. And the guy stamps it and lets him through. Two years later, he said, I was preaching at a church in Finland, and I was sharing the story that God told me not to say anything, uh, I mean, not to say anything unless I was directed by the Lord. And this businessman came up to him. And he said to him, he goes, I work for a telecommunication system that designed some of the most intricate software that was put in place in the airport in Beijing that if you would have spoken, it would have had your voice. And since they had recordings of your voice and you were deemed a hostile criminal, that they would have arrested you on the spot. But because God told you to be silent, he passed, you passed right through. It's amazing that you escaped. See, I look at that and I go, that encourages me. That gives me courage to be bolder, to see someone risk their neck for the name of Christ. See, Paul is saying, if anyone has any encouragement, any participation in the Spirit, if you've done anything like that, encourage us to step on and be more bold in our faith that we might take greater risk for the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing that we need to do, is make sure that we are receiving courage. Because when we love one another, we are seeing and getting to know other people's stories, and we are encouraged to take greater steps of faith. Now notice what else happens. Notice the phrase, any comfort from love. Any comfort from love. See, that's the second thing that we receive by loving others. We receive comfort. Now comfort there, it's a compound word. Paramethion. Para, which means to come alongside of. And mythion, which means soothing speaking. The idea is of someone coming alongside to encourage to provide consolation and comfort with words of truth and words of love. But these words come as a result of knowing what Christ has done on your behalf. See, the from love there is, uh, is the Greek word. It's talking about God's unconditional love. After receiving God's love, then we are to comfort one another with the comfort that we ourselves have received. So we're to be comforting one another. And when we comfort one another, we find ourselves being comforted at the same time because people are giving back what they themselves have received. Now let me ask you a question. Who, need, who do you need to comfort right now? Who needs, who, who needs a word from God or, or they need to know that God cares? We all need that. We all do. We all need to know that God cares about us and our situation and what we're struggling with, and what we're dealing with. This is why we have small groups so we get to know one another and truly share life together. And that opens up us, where we share our struggles and we share our sin. And yes, there's fear involved. Whenever we open up, we've been hurt in the past. We all have. But hopefully in this environment, by God's grace, we'll continue to encourage and be encouraged by one another and we will receive the comfort that comes from God. So there is an advantage to that. So we receive courage, we receive comfort, and we also receive communion. Communion. See, we get to interact with the people of God 
Notice what Paul says, any participation in the Spirit. Participation, the actual word there is koinonia, the word that we use for fellowship. The idea is of participating together in the person of God and what he has for us. And we have this communion, not just with God, but with other believers. And we get to learn about who God is by interacting with other believers. Because I get to find out what God is doing in Jack Dixon's life, or Gary Erweiler's life, or in Bobby Dunn's life. I get to hear that story, and I get encouraged, and I'm reminded that I'm not alone. See, we need those stories. I was talking to the guy who's been working downstairs in our lower level. He, uh, general, he's a general contractor from our Sugar Grove campus. He came to Christ two years ago. Uh, his name is Andy Besick, and Andy, hearing his story about what God has done in his life and is doing in his life encourages me, and I'm reminded that God is at work. Hearing the stories of people that have come to know Christ, we need one another's stories to be encouraged by them, because through them, we, we commune, we get to hear more about who God is, and it causes us to be in awe of God and s- desire to seek Him more. Just like I was speaking at AU the other night at InterVarsity, and I got to meet some great students, and I got to hear one student who's telling me his story on how he came to Christ in January. Is that right? Kevin's my man right over there. I passed him out, told him about the church, and uh, just came to Christ in January. Got baptized in March. Praise God. It's great hearing his story. And I, I would encourage you to talk to him, to get to know him. Sorry to put him on the spot his first time here. He's freaked out right now. Okay, but just uh, to get to know him and hear the story and be encouraged that God is still at work in people's lives. Because we have a tendency to say, what have you done for me lately? And we get discouraged by our current circumstances and fail to see that God is at work. But we need that communion. Now it's also, it's through loving others that we also received compassion. Compassion. Now the word for affection in Greek is splanknon. It literally means from the gut, actually from the bowels, from the kidneys, from the inner parts of who we are. When we're feeling and, and, and we're hurting so bad that it comes just out from the, the gut of who we are. And we receive this compassion because we see comfort, but people coming alongside us when we are in need of help. And we're in need of someone to, to help us in our time of need that will hurt and sympathize with us. I mean, the, you ever been through a difficulty in your life? really struggled, had a real big pain and problem, who helped you during that time? Was it the person that just said, I'm going to pray for you? Now, that, I'm not negating prayer, but sometimes it's the person just comes alongside and cries with us, that hurts with us, that helps us tangibly when we're suffering in ways that we can't begin to fathom. Now, here's another thing. If we're to continue to show this love, if we are actually to show this love, then we, it requires us cultivating a new approach. We have to do it differently than the world does. We have to approach this differently. See, the world has all of its psychology and ideology that dictates on how we should live and how should we should interact. But God's word is what is true and that is, that is resounded and abounded and persevered through time. And it's through God's word that we see how we are to behave and how we are to interact with one another. So we need to approach how we love one, another's, love one another by looking at the scripture. And in verse 5, we see that Paul, by the Spirit, is saying to us, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. You have to approach this differently. You have to have the mind of Christ. You can't do this in your flesh. You have to do as Jesus did by following his example and what he has laid out in his word for us. Now, how do we do that? Well, first of all, it requires that we resolve to pull together. Resolve to pull together. See, notice that there are the words same mind, same love, of one mind. It's talking about unity. And what did Jesus say in John chapter 17? How does the world know that he is the Christ? It's through us loving one another and seeking to be one. The problem is, is that we don't do that very well. We're not really good at loving one another. We're good about talking about loving God and having God or we're a spiritual entity. That's what people say. But when it comes down to the rubber meets the road and sacrificing ourselves for one another, we don't do a very good job. It's hard to do. I'm not going to say that it's easy with different personalities and backgrounds and people aren't thankful or ungrateful and, and people take advantage. It's easy to become embittered. I wonder how much Christ became embittered. But that's what God calls us to do, to persevere through that. 
cultivate a new approach and to make sure that we are pulling together. See, look at the, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what is he talking about there? How are we to have this mind in ourselves as, as Christ Jesus had? Well, it means not just correcting our thinking, but changing our attitude. Rejecting wrong attitudes. We, I mean, have you ever been around your kid or your spouse when they get an attitude? Right? They get a certain face or they use a certain phrase that just pushes your buttons. Because we know attitude is everything. I see parents looking at children right now. Okay? Because attitude is everything, is it not? How people respond to you when you make a request to do something. It's not just about what they say, it's about how they say it, right? How we, and what does the scripture say? That we're to consider one another of better than or more significant than ourselves and let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. See, what else does that mean? It means rejecting or resisting selfishness. Selfishness. We are by nature selfish individuals. And we find out how selfish we are when we get married. And we find out even more how selfish we are when we have children. Because children have a tendency to show that we like certain things a certain way. And we're very, at our core, very, very selfish. I mean, our culture has always been selfish, but I think it's even more so now. When I look in the world and I I see what's on the internet and TV, it's all about me. That's why they have the little phrase, what happens when you take your camera and you take a picture of yourself? What's it called? Selfie. (laughs) Selfie. I am going to throw up if I see another person take a selfie in front of the mirror doing this with stupid duck lips. Make me throw up. Okay? This is getting so old. Quit taking pictures of yourself. I've seen you. <laughs> We're done. Let's go on. Okay? Let's reject those se- that re- um, resist selfishness. Now, next, we are to regard others as more important. Regard others as more important. That's hard to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know, I, when I was in India, we first arrived, um, we, you know, we, we slept the first night, and then the first day we walked around, we were still getting over jet lag, and we were um, at the ministry complex in central India, and there's, there were all these pastors and leaders coming from all over India for this conference to be encouraged. And you hear some of the stories of faith and persecution and rejection and pain, and you're just, un, it, it, it's, it's like, I can't fathom, because I've never gone through anything like that. And yet they come up to you, and they, they want to touch you, they want to take your picture, because they see you as being so blessed and amazing. And I felt so not. I came to serve, and, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, you are the guys that deserve the applause. You are the ones that I want to hear your story. You are the ones that I want to honor. And we would go into different people's homes that had nothing, and they would give everything. They would give their, their meals and food, even if it meant them not eating. And if you didn't eat it, even though you might have been full, if you didn't eat it, it was an insult to them. And you felt so unworthy at that moment in time. I did nothing to deserve this. And yet they were considering us better than themselves. And if you've ever had someone, have you really tr- truly experienced someone treating you that much better when you, didn't, you knew you didn't deserve it? Now I see couples looking at each other. Saw children before, now I'm seeing couples. I'm reminded when we were really struggling as a family and uh, financially when the economy went bad in 2008. And uh, I had just finished grad school and looking for a church. No churches were hiring. And we ended up living in our friend's basement in Pennsylvania. It was really hard. It was the most humiliating time in my life. I wondered where God was. I wondered why I was serving him. And and he didn't seem to be there. But see, God was pruning me because I was also very proud. And he had to break me. And he broke me in a lot of different ways. He taught me about poverty. He taught me about what it means to be poor, to feel helpless, to feel hopeless. He also taught it what it meant to have someone consider, consider the others more significant than themselves. See, staying at someone's house, have you ever had guests stay at your house? How long before you're irritated? 
okay? If your guest is here today, I hope you're not laughing as you say that. But, um, you know, guests, as Benjamin Franklin said, uh, friends or guests are like fish. After three days, they stink. <laughs> That's what Benjamin Franklin said. It's true. If you ever have a guest in your home, it gets inconvenient. Your, your personalities can get in, your habits, and it can become a stressful time. And during that time, we're staying with our friend's house, and we'd been there for a few weeks, and it, it, it just it was getting bad. You know, I was getting irritated with their kids. I, they were getting irritated with me, and it's just back and forth. And uh, I got asked to preach at this very small church. So I preached, and this young couple came up to me, about my age, and they said, uh, would you come and stay in our home? And I'm like, I don't even know who you are, but thank you for the offer. We're already staying at this other friend's place. And so another week went by, another, another week after that, the stress was getting pretty bad. We were just really irritated with one another, and I got asked to preach at this church again. I preached at this church again, and this same couple came up to me, and they said, please, please come and stay in our home. So he said, okay, this time I agreed. Packed up our stuff, put it in the, the, the old minivan, drove over to their house, and the, the husband came outside and he helped carry our bags. And I thought we were just going to be staying in their basement. They were going to lead us down into the basement. You know, that's where we were staying at our other friend's house and just on a pullout and cushions. And, and it wasn't easy as a father and as a man seeing my, my wife, wondering why we're in this predicament, looking at my children. You know, my kids are flexible, but I, as a, as a father, I'm looking at them going, they're sleeping on cushions. This isn't supposed to happen. And so... The man, instead of taking us down the basement, he turns a corner and he starts walking up the stairs. And I thought, oh, maybe they're going to shove us in one of the kids' rooms. And they walk us down the hallway of this newly remodeled house, beautiful home. And he leads us into the master bedroom. And it's gorgeous. It's huge. It's got a big king-size bed and this brand-new stand-up surround shower. And, and uh, he goes, you'll be staying in here. And I, I almost started to cry because I thought, I don't deserve this. And what he was doing was he was honoring us more than himself, and I never felt so unworthy at that moment in time. And he and his wife were going to sleep in the air mattress in the, the kids' room. And we stayed that way for two weeks. And it was just such love. And I learned there about humility and loving and truly treating one another more significant than yourselves. Have you done that? Or is it all about you? We are to treat one another more significant than ourselves, and not only looking out to our own interests, but the other interests of others. We have to regard others as more important. Now, lastly, we must remember others' needs. Remember others' needs. See, part of our faith is helping meet people's needs, and it's more than just food or shelter, although that's part of it. See, I remember when we first came here to Grace, um, you were gracious enough to bring our family in. Your pastor, uh, Mark Krause, had, had just resigned, and uh, uh, you were looking for help, and the church agreed to adopt me and bring me in. Uh, but during that process, we were still struggling financially. We had come and were staying at another friend's home, and we had all these bills due, and I had no means of income. And uh, I went through, remember sitting through a meeting with the leadership, and Tim Bedall, who's the teaching pastor of the other campus, intuitively knew, and I, he saw that I was struggling. And after the meeting was over, he goes, hey, come with me. Let's hop in the car. So we're hopping in the car. He, jar- he starts driving over to a bank, and he goes to the ATM, and he pulls it out, and he goes, I have my wife's ATM card. Let's do some damage. That's what he said. Okay? He wasn't being serious. But he pulls out $200, and he hands me cash. See, that's loving one another to the point of sacrifice. Meeting one another's needs. And it's not just the, the, the physical needs of food and shelter and clothing and water. Those are huge. But we forget that there's also emotional needs. And this is what I learned when I was homeless or when we were staying in our friend's basement. That it, it's not just about the food. Because I was taught, and, and as a Westerner, I think in terms of that. But as I started studying poverty, I, and I, my, what I was feeling was being confirmed. You know, it's interesting. There was a study done. Uh, it's called Voices of the Poor, and there were thousands of poor people interviewed to ask, what is poverty? Because if I were to ask you, what is poverty, what would you say? What is poverty? Someone having, probably not having access to food, water, shelter, um, maybe education. But you know it's so much bigger than that? It's so much bigger than that. It's interesting 
that in the vast majority of the people of the West, we define poverty in terms of that, but poor people that are in it typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. Now, we have a tendency to emphasize those other things, but they look at it differently. Matter of fact, that study that I mentioned um, had, the poor, had poor people define what poverty was and what it felt like. I want to show you some of these quotes from different countries. Let me call this up for you. In Moldova, which is in Eastern Europe, right below Romania, uh, for, a poor, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. He goes, we are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We're like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. And when we were experiencing our, our poverty, and we weren't anywhere near what other people were, but I felt that. I felt hopeless. I remember going to a group of, of Christian businessmen, and people would ask what I did, and I was unemployed, and I felt like the worst guy in the world. And I just felt helpless, and I was dependent upon other people, and, and I, I didn't like that. But that's what it's like. Here's another quote that I want you to see from Guinea-Bissau, which is in Western Africa, the coast. Uh, when I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow, mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the family. I'm not well when I'm unemployed. It's terrible. Or here's this other quote from Latvia. During the past two years, we've not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable. Now, before you put a judgment on that, because many of us are saying, hey, you got your physical needs met. These are just extra things. But this is the things that we, we really struggle with. I remember when we were going through this, and I remember my wife saying, we don't have money to buy Christmas presents for other members of the family. That's humiliating. Or a birthday present for another family member. We're, that's what it means to be and feel it. And he says, he goes on, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present, because that's what the cultural norm is. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness, and a sense of low self-esteem. Or look at this quote from Uganda. When one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. She has no food, so there is famine in her house, no clothing and no progress in her family. Or from Cameroon. The poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. You know, it's interesting. Paul says this in Galatians 6.10. We are to do good as we have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, have you looked for opportunities to help other people? You know, I think that the reason that many of us are struggling in our Christian walk is we're no longer walking by faith. And I'm not talking about taking risks. Walking by faith is more often being obedient to what God has called us to do than it is being reckless. Because, see, there's a difference between walking by faith and recklessness. And the two can sometimes be confused from one another. Walking by faith means being obedient to the call of God upon me. And God won't, has a tendency not to let us move on in our walk until we obey what he has already called us to do. And then we will just be in a rut until we, are, we decide to do what he wants us to do and obey. There is no shelf life on conviction. God will not let you progress on until you do what he has called you to do. You can't circumvent that. There's no, there are no shortcuts to godliness. You can't microwave holiness. It's a crock pot. It's got to simmer. But it takes time and, and being deliberate and obeying what God has called us to do. So walking by faith truly is simply obeying what he has called us to do. We need to make sure that we are helping other people, but make sure that we're also not having a savior complex. See, a lot of people come in and they say, I'm being charitable, and I'm going to, to give to you now, and I want you to feel beholden to me. No, 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 that's defeating the purpose. See, people don't like feeling like they're receiving charity. It's humiliating. So what you do is you come alongside and say, hey, I've been there where you're at. I just want to help you out right now or try to empower them. I remember sitting in, um, when we were at the mission board in India. We were talking with them, and they were asking us, what, can, um, what will our church do? Lord willing, we are planning a mission trip next summer to India. So prepare on your calendars if you want to go. And they said, you know, what, what, um, what do you see yourselves doing? And I said, we see ourselves coming to serve you in whatever way capacity that we can. And we are coming as students. See, many Westerners come in and say, this is the way that it's done. You follow us. No, no, no. That's completely wrong. Because you don't understand the culture. 
And, and in, other, in other things, they can learn from us in some things, but we can learn from them. Like what it means to suffer in the face of persecution. To stand true in the midst of a place where you are being rejected day in and day out. So I told him, we're coming along to side you to partner, to learn and to give. We want to give to you, but we also want to receive the blessings of, of God from you. So we're, we're coming in here to, to learn from one another and to help you make your, the Lord's name known in India. And maybe you can come here and help us. Come here and help us as we try to reach our in very apathetic world. Now I want us to look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. See, Jesus stepped out of eternity, stepped into time, and he clothed himself with humanity, assuming our flesh and identifying with us. And see, his plan is for us to be a servant. Because as Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, as it says in Mark 10, 45. So we're to serve one another, which means that we need to be copying God's action plan. We need to follow the example of our Savior. Now, how do we copy God's action plan and how he has gone and showed how to truly love one another to the point of sacrifice? First of all, it involves taking the first step. Taking the first step. Don't wait. Don't wait for someone to ask you. You do it. If you know what you're supposed to do, then do it. Don't wait for one of the pastors or one of the elders, someone else to ask you. If you see a need, then you need to take that first step yourself. Come alongside them. Help them in their time of need. Next, it means being a servant. Being a servant. I like what Martin Luther King Jr. once said. He said, life's most persistent and urgent question is this. What are you doing for others? What are you doing for others? Are you serving? And I know some of you are serving very, very faithfully. And may God bless you. And I hope you, you are encouraged in your service. But many of us need to step up. We need to serve others. If you can't be Christ-like without serving. I'm not saying you have to serve it at church. You could be serving in a lot of different ways, but there are many opportunities here, and the, the opportunities are endless. You could say, well, what can I do? It could be anything. I mean, you could be washing windows. You could wash toys. You could babysit children. You could fix cars. Uh, you could help prepare communion. You could greet people at the door, make them feel at home. You can help clean the church. You can help build things. It, it's endless. It could be leading people or teaching, or it, it could be... Uh, Coming over to someone's house and cleaning their bathroom when you know that they're sick. Which we've had happen. And I've had, we've had people come to our house and I've seen people go to others' houses when, when people are struggling. And they'll come in and they'll clean their bathroom. Now, you want to talk about love and sacrifice, come and clean my bathroom. Okay? For those of you who have a lot of boys, it's a big deal. That's love. It's sacrifice. But that's on the ground. That's sacrificing ourselves and giving ourselves for the sake of others that Christ's name might be made known. It means being a servant. And lastly, being this extraordinary family. Because this is extraordinary to do it because the world doesn't do this. Because the world is all about self and, and taking, not giving. But it is sacrificing it all for the sake of others. Sacrificing it all for the sake of others. Jesus said himself in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that all is contingent upon being together and getting to know one another. And if you're not here then it's hard for us. This is why church attendance is so important, by the way. Because I hear people say all the time, I don't need to go to church in order to be a Christian. I disagree with that. Because when Jesus saves you, I mean, we are saved by faith through grace, yes. We're not saved by works. But an expression of our faith is seen by being with other people. Because we're to be loving one another. And you can't love one another if, you don't, if you're not around people. 
especially other believers, and working out our, our, our faith and obeying the Word of God. And the Word of God says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25. But we're to be encouraging one another as we see the day of Christ approaching. We may not be, be deceived by sin, that we might be able to identify false doctrine, that we might stand true, and that we might extend and hold fast the word of life to a very lost world. And see, when we do that, we become an extraordinary family. And people, people start experiencing grace. And you know what? Grace is contagious. And it's an epidemic. When it gets out and people experience it, they want more of it. It's not about preaching on Sunday morning. I mean, preaching is great. It's a huge part of the church. But ministry extends beyond Sunday morning in the pulpit. It goes on through the week. That's where ministry is. I mean, being together as a body, being in small groups and encouraging one another and helping one another on what it means to walk with Jesus. I mean, if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith and trust in Christ and, you, and you're not yet a part of this extraordinary family, it's easy. The way that you come in is you repent of your sins and you believe and place your faith in Christ, your trust in Him, and He will save you. The Scripture is very, very clear that if you confess your sins and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in Acts 2.21 will be saved. In Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then you'll be a part of that extraordinary family. Knowing what it means and learning what it means to be a true follower of Christ. I think that's what we all aim for, Right? We want to love Jesus to the point of transformation, love one another to the point of sacrifice, and love our neighbor to the point of action. So one more time, just to make sure everybody's got it, because next week we're going to talk about this. We need to know this. Love Jesus to the point of transformation. Love each other or one another to the point of sacrifice, and loving our neighbor to the point of action action. And that's what we're going to learn, learn about next week. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Father, in this Back to Church Sunday, as we're entering into this fall season, as we're still settling down and getting into the rhythm and cycles and season of this time, Lord, may we truly surrender to you. May we experience this community that you have laid forth in your word for us. Lord, as we consider how Paul was sharing with the Philippians and encouraging them to find this unity, to give themselves so sacrificially, may we follow the admonitions within scripture and may we truly implement the truths of your word that we might experience the joy and presence of Almighty God. Lord, we struggle with sin day in and day out. We know that we are rebellious at our core. And we thank you that you gave your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us to truly walk in this newness of life as we seek to take up our cross daily, crucify our flesh, and walk in this new resurrection life that you have given unto us. And Lord, help us to truly be this extraordinary family. And Lord, to pray uh, for our church, our other campuses, and the church throughout the world, that they too might be an extraordinary family where those who are afar off and yet do not know God might see and experience the grace of God. And may they hear the words of Christ. May they repent of their sins and place their trust in you that they too might be changed. So Lord, please glorify yourself in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.